tonight we are uh, uh, looking, I think this is the fourth in the series of uh, things about the tabernacle. And you may recall that uh, the case I'm presenting is that the tabernacle is a picture of uh, Yeshua, of course, that's pretty obvious, and a picture of us. And we've been looking at, uh, we looked at the, the tent covering the first week and uh, the uh, ark and the mercy seat the second week and the table of showbread last week, and tonight we'll be taking a look at the menorah. So if you recall, uh, as, you're, as you walk into the holy place, you've got the right directly ahead of you is the veil, which we haven't talked about yet. Behind the veil is the ark and the mercy seat. And then to the right is uh, something else going on, apparently. <laughs> to the right is the temple of showbread, and to the left is the menorah. So the, the temple actually forms something of a cross on the inside, in addition to the cross on the outside, because you've got the way the camps are laid out forms a cross. So uh, that's where we are today. Let me just read to set this up, Exodus 25, verses 31 and 32. And it says, thou shalt make a menorah of pure gold, of beaten work, shall be the menorah be made. His shaft, his branches, his bowls, his knops, his flowers shall be of the same. Six branches shall come out of the sides of it, three branches of the candlestick on one side and three branches of the candlestick on the other side. So we all have a pretty good sense of, uh, I think we had a picture up there briefly, of you know what a menorah looks like. And of course, we don't know exactly what the temple menorah looked like other than the description we can get uh, here in Exodus and in Leviticus and whatnot. But you recall when Moses was on the mount, uh, the Lord uh, identified two guys that he had given the ability to uh, do this incredible craftsmanship and the things, I mean, think about it. This, this, this menorah is, it's not doesn't say how big it is. We suspect it's probably five or six feet tall, and it's all out of one piece of solid gold. And he beats the, you know, the arms and all the, the fruit and the vegetables and the bowls. And it would it would be a it would be difficult to do today. That's for sure. Let alone back in those days. So the word menorah comes not surprisingly from the word or, which is the Hebrew word for light. Bless you. And a menorah, of course, gives light. So naturally, it would come from the word for light. Now, think about, you know, the things that we've learned and the way everything's positioned. Last week, we talked about the shulchan, the temple, uh, the table that has the 12 loaves of bread on it. And of course, the bread is a picture of the word of God. And if you recall from week one and from all the pictures you've ever seen, that the entire tabernacle is covered with all these various skins and cloths and all this. So from the outside, it doesn't look like anything. It's all covered with badger skin and it's basically desert colored. And, you know, you could walk by it and not think any big deal of it. But once you get in it, it's absolutely beautiful with all the gold and purple and red and the embroidery and the gold implements and the brass implements and the silver rings and the gold covered boards. And, you know, it's stunning. But it's completely dark in there because of all the skins. So the only way to see anything is with this menorah. This is the light of the temple or the tabernacle or the, you know, um, 
so the way it's positioned, its light shines directly on the table of showbread. Because remember, there's a veil between the mercy seat and the ark and the rest of the temple. So the light doesn't shine in that room unless that veil is open. But it's directly across from the showbread. So think this through. The showbread, like we talked about last week, is the word of God, right? It's, it's the mind. If, if the ark and the mercy seat were the heart and that the, the covering was the body, this is the mind. And we talked a little bit about how you, you know, we only do what we want to do is the way we work. We like to think we're led by the heart, but we're not. We only do the things that we want to do. So whatever your mind thinks and believes are the things that we do and say. And you can pretend all you want that you believe this or believe that, or you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And ultimately, unless you're convinced in your mind, you don't do it. So that's the important part of who we are in that sense, because the mind controls the heart. So the way this is laid out, the light shines on the bread, which is the word which controls the mind. So those are the words of God, and they have to fill our mind, and we have to believe them. It's, it, it, it's one thing to know all of this stuff and to memorize the Bible and all that, but if you don't believe it, if you just think if it's a, a book or some instruction manual, then it does you no good. It doesn't change your heart. It doesn't change your, your actions. You still do what you want to do, and if the things that you do are separated from the Word of God, then it's meaningless. It's just temporal. It's, it's worldly stuff. So the most important part in that sense of this whole picture is the table of shoebread because that's the word. And we have to have the word ingrained in our, and we have to believe it. And this light shines directly on that, uh, that table. So the Hebrew word for shaft in, in the sense of this menorah is yarek, and it means thigh or body or loins, which are the, the place of life. Um, <clears throat> so there's one shaft, right? One main shaft and three arms on each side. So the one, the one, the main shaft, one of course is a number meaning unity or singleness, or, you know, it's a number that is associated with God because there's only one God. He's unique. Everything that he does is separate from everything else that happens. He's the one guy. So there's one shaft. Yarek is that word. And it means, Essentially, it means loins, which is the, uh, you know, the place of life. So out of this shaft, out of this life, out of this oneness, singleness, out of this picture of God comes three arms of the uh, menorah on each side. So there are six arms all together. And of course, six, as you know, is the number of man. So the implication is pretty obvious and clear. If the yarek, the shaft, the main part of the menorah is a picture of God, the one, the singleness, the unity, the place where life comes, if that's the picture of God, then naturally out of that comes man. And you have three of these on each side. So the, you know, the obvious lesson, I mean, that any Hebrew would see, and I'm sure most of us see the same thing, is that we come from God. God has created us from his loins, from his oneness, from his singleness, from his ability to do that which uh, if we look at Romans chapter 11 is the, is the entire purpose and lesson of Romans chapter 11, where it talks about uh, the, the wild olive tree and the natural tree and how uh, 
some branches will be broken off and others will be grafted in. And, you know, if, if you read chapter 11, it's basically talking about this same picture that you see that in, in the menorah, the Yarek, the out of the loins of God comes man. And, and you know, that's just Shaul talking about these same, same things that we see here pictured in uh, the tabernacle. So it's, you know, it's no coincidence that uh, both sides of, 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 of uh, the light of God come from the body. And John uses this same picture of the lampstands, the tabernacles, the menorah in Revelation. And in Revelation one twenty, it says, the, and you know, you have to read the whole section to get it in context, but you know what I'm talking about. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest at my right hand, are the seven gold candlesticks. And the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks that you saw are the seven churches. So again, this menorah is picturing all these things that John is describing in the book of Revelation, uh, because the Lord uses the same terminology. He uses this picture of the candlestick, the menorah. And if you're Hebrew, anytime you see certainly uh, a menorah or the menorah, or you speak of light in this sense, they're talking about the menorah in the tabernacle. It's not the one you have on your kitchen table. It's not the light that's outside. The first thing that comes to the Hebrew mind is this picture of of the light in the tabernacle, the, the light uh, of God that's illuminating his word. And, you know, you can think of uh, hundreds of verses, I'm sure, about, you know, the light to your path and all these things. But we, as 21st century Christians, tend not to, to immediately jump there when we see the light or the menorah or whatever. We think about, you know, I mean, it's the light outside. We think about that light, and that's seldom the light they're talking about in scripture. And again, the tabernacle is utterly, completely 100% dark because it's covered in these skins that no light can penetrate except for this menorah. And that is not a coincidence. You know, all the light in our lives has to come from the light of God. It has to come from his word. It has to change our heart. It has to change our actions. It has to change the way we think and see and do. So, um, you know, if you apply this to last week, when, when you consume the showbread, the, the priests consume it on the Sabbath, you know, they're consuming the word of God and then they, they do their priestly duties and they share with the people who come into the holy place and then are in the courtyard. So they first have to consume the word, which is only done by the light of the menorah. And then they go out and they share this word with the people. And the purpose of their sharing with the people is to help the people determine for themselves what is holy and what is profane. And they teach you the things of the Lord so that you can see what the truth is. Like I said, with the bankers, you know, the tellers, they can tell a counterfeit hundred from an uncounterfeit hundred from a real one, not, you know, now they have machines and pens and all that stuff, but forever they, they just did it because they saw so many hundreds real ones they could tell and you can't even explain it they just they just know and that's this 
picture is, is if you're so inundated with the truth and the word and the light of God, you just know. And that's the job of the priest is to teach us these things so that when we go outside of the temple, we just know what is holy and what is profane. We're able to follow the things of the Lord. And, you know, whether that happens or not today is, uh, you know, is up for debate. And I've spoken to you before about, you know, the, the religious study, the head of the religious studies professor at UCSB who is, you know, forced to take the position of the evolutionist when the evolutionist guy didn't show up in the debate. And throughout the course of the debate, you get to know the guy. And the, the question one of the kids ask at the end is, well, you know, why do you believe? Because it was obvious from the things he said and did and acted, he didn't believe. He knew the book. He went to church. He, he said he'd been a Christian all his life. He'd attended the Episcopal or Methodist or something church forever. And yet it wasn't in his heart. He just knew the words. So it hadn't migrated from here to here. And that only happens with the light. And this picture of the menorah is that. It's that picture of taking the word and getting it to the heart, which is in the ark and the mercy seat. So, um, you know, recall from when we talked about the ark and the mercy seat, the mercy seat can only, it says it comes down from above. So it's clearly a picture of Yeshua and the ark contains the uh, 10 commandments, the Aaron's rod that budded and manna from heaven. So it, it is his authority, it's his provision, and it's his word. So those things are typically from the Tanakh, which are in the box. And then Yeshua came down from above, which is represented by the uh, angels in the mercy seat. And it was sprinkled with blood by the high priest once a year. And both were sprinkled. And that speaks of this idea all through scripture that you have to have both. You have to both uh, have the test as says in Revelation 14, 12, I think, you have to have both the testimony of Yeshua and keep the commandments. You have to know the, the word of the Lord and you have to know the son of the Lord. So that was the picture when the, when the high priest would go in and, and sprinkle. And it's the same sort of picture with uh, the light, you know, if the light represents the Lord, but it's uh, illuminating the word, you have to have both. So it's the word and the spirit. Uh, Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp unto the law, uh, and the law is light. Reproofs the instruction are the way of life. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light. And again, all through scripture, you see this, if you're, if you're willing to look for it, you see this picture of Judah and Israel, Judah and Israel, Judah and Israel. Judah is the law, Israel is the Lord. You know, it's, uh, it's always the two. And the dog has something to say about that. Okay, Isaiah 49, verse 6. And he said, is, is it a small thing that thou should be my servant? to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light, the root of menorah, to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. And Isaiah 20, 
or 42, 6, says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thy hand. And I will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. So again, you get so many um, people typically like us who are not Jewish and don't live in the land and think the, the, the Tanakh is not for us. But all through the Tanakh, it describes the purpose of the people of Judah, of the Jews, of the children of God, of the people in the desert, of the people in the tabernacle. Their purpose is to be a light to the Gentiles, right? He didn't, the Lord didn't come down to the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Judeans and the Sumerians and all that. He came down to the children of Israel, to the Jews, and he shared with them the truth, and he wanted to dwell with them. And that's why he asked Moses to build him a tabernacle, that he could live with these stiff-necked people. He lived with them. He didn't live with them. The job of the priest was to teach his people, all the people in the temple, all the people in the court, the people that encamped with the Lord. And remember that that. In English, it's grace. It's that word to camp with. The people that were willing to follow after the things of the Lord. Those are the people he came to. And he came to teach us to be a light to those other people. That's our job. His job is not to teach them, to save them. His job is to get us to understand his truth, the picture of the light and the showbread and and the heart to get us to understand those things so that in the way that we conduct ourselves and live our life, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Jebusites and the Kenites and all of the people that live around will see that that's something they want and they will bring, they will seek after the Lord. And we tend not to think that way, but that's exactly what scripture says from top to bottom. You know, that's why we have missionaries. That's why the Jews were the chosen people of the Lord, not because they were awesome people or they did everything right or really even did anything right. It didn't matter. He just, that was, that was his plan to, to select a group of people and to teach them about him so that the other people would see the change in them and desire that. And that's what we saw with Rivka. That's what we saw with Ruth, that's what we saw with Rahab, with uh, Ezekiel, or not Ezekiel, Elijah, with Caleb. I mean, all these people, they weren't Jews. They weren't Israelites. They were Gentiles. And they saw what was going on and how the Lord was working with these people and how these people conducted themselves and reacted and what they believed and what they thought. And then they looked at their lives where they were and they found it to be wanting. So they sought after the things of the Lord. And that's our job. That's the picture of this menorah um, in the tabernacle. So when we talk about the light in the tabernacle, the menorah, the light on the word, you know, and all that stuff, we as Christians tend to talk about the light a lot. And you should think about well, what does that mean? <laughs> what I mean, what does it mean for you to be the light of the word or to be the light unto the world? Or, you know, does it mean you, uh, you know, your actions and wisdom are awesome, your super nice personality, your helpful nature, uh, your ability to tithe and give? What, what is it that's light? And I would suggest 
that it's um, really none of those things. <laughs> He's the light. And if he doesn't live in us, then we can't share it with anybody else. And we often, and again, when I say we, I mean me. I'm hoping there's somebody that joins with me on this. But we tend to conduct ourselves to be nice and to be good and to be helpful and, you know, and all of those things, thinking that that's doing the Lord's work. And it's really not. You know, Princess Diana was a delightful person and she had, she saved many people heartache in this world and she did all kinds of wonderful things to all kinds of people she would never meet again or maybe never meet the first time. And she was just a, she had what we call, you know, a great heart. She would do whatever she could do to alleviate the suffering of people on earth. And that's awesome. But that doesn't help. Because if, if you alleviate their suffering for a year or 10 years or 40 years and they die without knowing the Lord, this is not a good thing. Our job is not to be helpful and, 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 and kind and considerate like that. Our job is to be a light unto the Lord. And through that comes this kindness and this considerateness and the willing to help and all of that stuff. But if we do all of that stuff, like Diana or even Mother Teresa or, you know, there's a million people that go out of their way to do wonderful, glorious things for people that they don't even know, people that are in the, the worst circumstances you can imagine, but they don't share the Lord with that then we've done nothing. Yeah, exactly. We've prolonged their suffering in a sense. That's not our job. Our job is to be lights for him. And our job's not to be him. It's to be a light for him so that other people will say, well, why did you come to my village and dig a well? Because Yahweh wants you to have water and he wants you to know who he is. If I just came there to dig a well so that you have water, I've done nothing except prolong your life for some amount of years. But if you want eternal life, then you have to share the truth of the book, of the God, of, of this guy. And this is all pictured in the temple, the way everything interacts and the way it all works together. Um, you know, you think of all the times that Yeshua said he was the light of the world and, you know, all of, I mean, I'm sure you have verses in your mind that talk about a light unto my feet or a light unto the path or, you know, one of, one of the ones we talk about all the time is in John 12 or John 8 verse 12. It said, then spake Jesus again unto them saying, I am the light of the world and he that followeth me will not work in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And if you remember the context of that, this was on his birthday. He was at the Feast of the Tabernacles when they had the four 75-foot-tall menorahs in the court of the women, and they would be lit. You know, they, they'd send the new priest recruit up the 75-foot-tall rickety ladder to light the uh, seven-gallon bowls of oil that could be seen for 60 miles. So at the celebration of this on the last and greatest day of the feast, I'm convinced on Yeshua's birthday, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they're doing this lighting ceremony for the last time. And it was at that point he said this, you know, that uh, I am the light of the world. Walk with me and you will not be in darkness. And we tend, because we don't speak Hebrew and we don't live in that culture, we tend to see this as, oh yeah, light and dark. I get that. But it's more than that. 
it's not just light and dark. It's going to be dark in an hour or whenever it's going to be dark, when the Sabbath actually comes. And that's fine. We get some sort of a vague idea of what he's talking about. But that's what I've been talking about with this temple thing, is if, if, if we learn the way that everything is set up and the, and the real meaning of it, it's just head knowledge if it doesn't change the way you think, if it doesn't change your actions, and if it doesn't cause you to, you know, to not see it as light and dark, but to see it as, as it's, it's God, it's, it's life, it's eternity. You know, we need to see and believe those things and act that way. So when he says, hey, I want you to go to Zimbabwe or Carbondale, you know, I don't know, that you're not just going to do something that's good and you're not getting a joyful heart because you've helped somebody because you really haven't unless you've helped them to see the Lord. And maybe that happens by your doing a good deed and they see that and recognize that most people wouldn't have done that for me. But someone needs to share that that is because of the Lord. He asks us, once we know the truth, to not just sit on it, but to share it, and share it any way we can. And it was, I think, St. Francis of Assisi that said, share God wherever you go, use words if necessary. You know, it's our actions. It's the way we conduct ourselves. When you really believe something, it's apparent. You know, and I know a lot of things about a lot of people in this room, and I know it's because that's what they really love. Those are the things in their mind. That's what they want to do. And that's awesome. That's the way we need to be with the word. That's the temple or the table of shewbread. That was the word of the Lord. And we can ingest the word and we can repeat the verses and we can go to church and we can sing the songs. And that's great. But if it doesn't go from there to here, it's pointless. You might as well be golfing because you're not doing anybody any good. And don't think for a moment because you went to church and you've learned all those verses that it's going to do you any good unless it's moved to here. And when it's moved to here and you have the heart and the head together, then the actions reflect that. And that's the whole purpose of the temple. He wanted to dwell with his people and his people rejected him seven times from Sunday. I mean, every time he turned around, they were ticking him off doing something. But his desire, his heart and his mind was to live with these people, to, to camp with them, to be a part of their lives. The guy is the creator of the entire universe. And he chooses to come live in a 30 by 30 by 30 box in the middle of the desert in Israel because he loves these people who, who just treat him terribly. I mean, he's an idiot, right? Why would you follow a guy like that? Because his heart is pure and he wants you to have that heart. And the whole thing about this tabernacle, sure, it's a building and we can do all these things and it's awesome. Just like our, it's a building, you know, we go see the, you know, whoever our pastor is and we listen to what it, and it's great. Oh yeah, and the donuts were awesome. You know, that's good. Okay, excellent. But that's not the point. That was never the point. The point was always all of these pictures, are they, are they going to do to you what has happened to the Lord? Are you going to be like that? Are you going to desire above all else 
to bring your light and the truth of the Lord to people who don't even like you. You know, that's what he asked. That's the purpose of the people of Israel, the children of God. He selected one group, and not because they were, you know, anything special, to share with the entire world. Why didn't he just share with the entire world? I don't know. It wasn't his plan. And I'm sure uh, at some point in eternity, while we're sitting at the feet of the Lord forever, we will get that figured out. Right now, I can't tell you. I can make some sort of guess that it's awesome, but I don't know. So when we read in the scripture, um, you know, that Jesus is light and all that, that's what he's talking about. When we read Shaul or Peter say, uh, you know, he uses this term often, the sons of light. And we, you know, in English, we read that stuff and go, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's that other roller team. You know, yeah, the sons of light. I think they're from Detroit, you know, or whatever. Let me just read 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. And you are the children of light, the children of day. We are not from the night nor of the darkness. And we read stuff like that. Oh, yeah, I haven't killed anybody this week. It's been great. I only was, you know, I mean, speed a couple times, but they're not writing tickets because of this COVID thing. So it's no big deal. That's not it at all. The light and the dark are different things. The light and the dark are the Lord and evil. You know, the power of the world and the power of heaven. And we, I think, again, because I do, tend to minimize those things. It's one thing to be, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm light. <laughs> right. You know me better than that. Um, but we are to be light and not darkness, right? Okay. So the, the light in the menorah, in the temple, in the tabernacle, was never to go out. And that's in Leviticus 24, verses 2 and 3. It says, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil, pure olive oil, beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually. Without the veil of testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation shall Aaron order it from evening until the morning before the Lord continually and should be a statute forever in your generations. So this, this menorah burns constantly. It's literally the eternal flame, right? It never goes out. It can't go out if it represents the light of the Lord, if it's the light of the word, if it's the, uh, the light to your path, it can't go out. So it was never to go out. And there were uh, a number of mechanics involved in making that happen. Uh, and of course, you know, we'll read a little bit later about the bowls and the knops and the, you know, all the different things of the candlestick. But ultimately, it's just a bowl of oil. And the oil has a wick in it. And the wick is made of uh, spargano, which are the, uh, the, the linen clothes that the priest would wear were sanctified and were special. And they were used for nothing else other than their priestly duty. They were white linen. And it's not like you would go work on your, you know, your chariot with these or this. You, you cleansed yourself. You put yourself in these linen garments. You did your priestly work. You removed the linen garments. You know, you got back into your civvies and did what you were going to do. But eventually these linen garments 
were, uh, you know, they were, you can't use a ratty one. You can't use a dirty one. So they are done and you have to exchange them for a new one. What do you do with it? It's sanctified unto the Lord. You can't just throw, it's like, what do you do with an American flag when it's done? You can't just throw it in the garbage. <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's a protocol because you can't just throw it away. These were sanctified unto the Lord. You can't just throw it away. So what would happen is the linen garments would be uh, ripped into strips, which are called spargano, and then they would be rolled together and wrapped up, and that would make the wicks for the menorah. And it would, and other duties like that. But there were, there were holy duties that you could use the linen for after it had been used up. You just couldn't throw it away. So, uh, but they burn, right? I mean, they burn oil. So the oil is burning, but eventually the wicks, you know, you have to replace the wicks. So, and we're not going to talk about this, but on the table, if you, if you read this, there are tongs and there are snifters or, you know, things to put the candle out with. And there are all these implements. So the implication is there was a certain amount of maintenance that had to go along with it, but the candle could never go out. So as you read through scripture, you'll find that what would happen is uh, they would leave the main candle, the, the, the yarek, the candle in the, the sh on the main shaft, it would burn and they would put the other ones out. And that would allow them to fill the bowls with oil, to trim the wicks, to change the wicks if they need to. And then when they had to work on the yarek, they would light a couple of the other candles. And the candles would burn, uh, all seven would not burn during the day. They would only burn at night and during services and special times. But there was always something burning. And when you had a service on the Shabbat, all of them would be lit. At night, all of them would be lit. There were certain times that all of them, okay, that's fine. They burn eternally. But the Lord moved the tabernacle 44 times during the 40 years in the desert. And you read about how they moved the stuff. And this was covered with a blue cloth, blue picture of the spirit, but you know, it's solid gold and it's of some substantial height and weight. I mean, it was worth some money. And you can't just haul that around because it's designed to be in the tabernacle. It has a holy place and a holy duty. So you can't just haul it around, throw it over your shoulder and go to the next place. So there's special protocol to move it and all that stuff. Well, you cover it with this blue cloth and you put it on these boards and you carry, you know, and all that stuff. Well, that means the light's out, but it says the light can't be out because it has to burn forever. So what they would do is they had the incense and you've, you know, you've read this a million times and seen it and we don't do it anymore. So we have no experience with it, but they would take the hot coals, which would represent the fire and you'd swing it. You know, and you see that in the Catholic and Lutheran churches today, they swing it and all the, you know, incense goes up and we think that's why they're swinging it. Well, certainly that's true, but they swing it to keep it lit, right? You have to have airflow because it has to remain lit until you get to the next place. So you can erect the tabernacle, you can put the menorah up, you can fill it full of oil, you can trim the wicks, and you've still got this thing who's got the coals in it from the last place and you can light the menorah so it never really went out. And that's how that would function because you, the, you know, the, the idea is the light never goes out. It can't, it's God, it can't go out, but you have to move it and you got to be practical. So that was their solution. 
So then the question becomes, where is it today? In 70 AD, there was no more temple. They looted it. They took all the stuff. There's no menorah. Presumably they melted the gold. The light went out. Well, that's bad. If that light is, is the light, if that light is the spirit, and the spirit shines on the word, and the word changes your mind, which changes your heart, you have to have the light. So where did it go? Exactly. The Lord came and he died, and the, the, the veil was ripped, and we now had access, and the spirit indwelled us. That light is in us. So as you consider this picture of the tabernacle that we've been drawing and all the things that are in the tabernacle and the real meanings of them and the picture of the tabernacle being the Lord. And then you think in 70 AD, it, it was gone. Did that all go away? No, it, it went into us. Remember Peter at, at Pentecost was preaching and what 3000 people came to know the Lord, the tongues of fire fell on these people. They were indwelt with the spirit. So the light didn't go out. It moved. And we get people today. Uh, you know, I've known a lot of them in my day that are all filled with the spirit, you know, and I can go here and I can tell if there's dark. Maybe I hope there are people like that. I mean, not so much for me. My, my thing is, in a, is in a little different direction. But he describes the body, right? It's the body now. And if the spirit indwells different people in the body, there are going to be people with the vision to see that that's darkness. And we should avoid that guy. And they're taking, the, the in a sense, taking the place of the priests, whose job was to help us discern the holy from the profane. And then there's going to be other people, perhaps, hopefully people like me, who the, the Lord has put in my heart different things. I want to know what he said. I want to know the words. And I'm happy, as you know, to share that with anyone. And then there's other people that manifest the spirit in a different way. And however we choose or have, I mean, that's not like we choose. I think it's something the Lord gives. However we manifest the spirit, is going to be different than somebody else manifesting the spirit. And a human tendency is to say, oh, that guy's full of baloney, because that's not, that's not how I do it. You know, I don't think that's true. I think we're the body. And everyone who has the spirit in them manifests it differently because it has to be this light that appeals that that all that the Moabites and the Dananites and the Kenites and the Jebusites and the, you know, Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the world, we need to take that light there. And it's not just the way I see the spirit or feel the spirit or the way Kent sees the spirit or feels the spirit or the way Kevin feels them. It's all of those things. And we need to take that picture. Okay, so Amos 8.11 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, and not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And I would suggest to you, I mean, I'm sure every Bible teacher since 
before Yeshua has said the same thing, but I would suggest to you that we're there. There is a giant famine for the truth of the word. There are people going to church all over the place, but this church has, you know, a lesbian pastor and that church uh, doesn't want to believe the things of the scripture. And this church thinks uh, the Tanakh is not for us. And, you know, that church, I mean, you look at the stuff these 4,200 different churches believe. It's, it's not the thing the Lord asks you to believe. It's not the stuff of the bread on the table. It's not the spirit shining on the word. It's what they want to believe. They want to believe it's okay for people to completely disregard the truths of the Bible and do what they want to do. And because people do what they want to do, they find all kinds of people to agree with them and come to their church. Well, that doesn't make it right. There's a, t there's a time coming when this famine is a famine of the, of the word of the Lord. And I, you know, there's, there's almost no question in my mind that, you know, the menorah in the church has gone out and the church doesn't even know the direction they're supposed to go in. They allow all manner of filthy deception and the teachings often fall short of anything near the truth. And, and some churches are right on the money. I mean, some pastors are right. And, and I don't all have to say the same thing and teach the same thing. But every pastor you talk to, I'm sure, oh, my heart's for the Lord. Well, I hope it is. But you can't have a heart for the Lord and not do the things of the Bible. You know, it's great to say that. But the job of the pastor is to help you discern the holy from the profane. And I think some of them don't know themselves. Isaiah 8.20. And to the Torah, to the Torah and to the testimony, if they speak according to his word, if they speak not according to his word, it's because there's no light in him. If they do speak according to the word, it's because there's light in them. And so it's to the, to the law and the testimony, to the Torah and the testimony, to the, you know, Revelation 14, 12 again. It's, you have to have the testimony of Yeshua or Jesus, and you have to, know the Torah. You have to keep the commandments. You have to do both. All through scripture, it says that. And here it is again in Isaiah. This word trans translated as testimony is teoda, and it's from the, from the word ode, and it, it's duplicate, you know, and, and the testimony, Yeshua, Jesus, is the duplicate of Yahweh. He is the exact picture of the Father who came down as the top of the mercy seat, to us, we, we have to have that testimony. We have to recognize who he is. But he's also the Torah. He came to fulfill everything in the Torah. So we have to receive his testimony. And we have to keep his word. Okay. So if we look physically at the menorah, you know, just at the picture as it's described in various places in scripture, and we're going to pick it up in Exodus 25, 33 through 35, it's just describing what it should look like. And, and we, we've already discussed that it's one shaft with three branches on each side. Uh, three bowls made unto like almonds with a, 
a knop, a flower in one branch and three bowls made like almonds in the other branch and a knop and a flower. So six branches that come out of the candlestick and in the candlestick shall be four bowls made unto like almonds with their knops and their flowers. And there shall be a knop under two branches of the same and the knop under two branches of the same and the knop under the two branches of the same, according to the six branches that proceed out of the candlestick. Okay. You got all that? Okay, somebody did, and they built one. <laughs> Maybe not, yeah. Uh, so the almonds are the bowls that hold the oil. And that word in Hebrew is shakad. And shakad, there's another word in Hebrew called shakad, spelled and pronounced exactly the same way, that is the, the word for alert or watch. So you're talking about the bowl that holds the oil at the wick, the spargano. And I mentioned, right, that the spargano is what, the baby Jesus was wrapped in, right? And the, when he was born at the Feast of Tabernacles in the manger, if you haven't heard that one, you got to hear that one. Um, he was wrapped in Spargana. Those are the, the, the linen garments of the priests that were sanctified. And of course, the uh, Mary and Joseph's cousin was the priest. All priests were on duty during all the feasts. So he would have known. He already knew his father of John. He already knew who this baby was going to be. So naturally, he would bring sanctified clothing to cover the baby in. And I suspect this was not used stuff. I suspect it was brand new. So it was ripped, spargano, that's the Greek word for swaddling in English. So he was wrapped, the baby Jesus, Yeshua, was wrapped in this spargano, these linen, uh, I'm sure they were, they were unused priestly garments because he is the high priest. And he was born on that day that he later said, you know, I'm the light of the world and all that. We've gone through all that stuff. So anyway, the, the almond, the place that holds the oil with the spargano in it is this word shakad, which is the word for alert or watch. So this, these lights in the menorah, which represent the spirit shining light on the, on the bread, the word, so you can change the heart. These, it, it's actually the alert or the watch, this oil, the spirit is the alert and the watch. So the, the Hebrew or the, uh, it's, the Greek word is gargoyoyo, not that you'll ever use that in your entire life, but it's a picture of the watch. It's not just a bowl of oil that burns a candle like on my table and yours. It's the watching. It's in the, it's in the tabernacle. This is the light, but it's watching the word. It's watching the mercy seat in the ark. It's watching the priest, the veil, the temple of incense, all the stuff that goes on in the holy place and the holy of holy place. Is it, the word is it's watching. The spirit is watching. Okay. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse two starts like this, but of the times and the season, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you for you yourselves know perfectly uh, that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as travail upon a woman with a child. They shall not escape. But ye brethren are not in darkness that you should be overtaken as a thief. You are the children of light and the children of the day are not of the night nor of darkness. So therefore, let us, not, let us not sleep as others do, but watch and be sober. That, that's, that's the word of this bowl in the menorah that fills the watch, be alert. And it's, you know, Paul puts it in the context of, of course, the end times. Uh, he says, we are not darkness, we are light, but we are to keep 
watch the almond bowl full of oil with the linen spargano in it. That's who you are. You are to keep watch because these things are happening. So a million other times, uh, same thing with Yeshua and the 10 virgins, right? Five went, five didn't. And he says, keep watch. That's the same picture of the menorah, the bowl, the oil, the burning. Okay. So you've had, you've got the almonds, then you've got the flowers, which are peak raw in Hebrew, and, and that means to bloom or to blossom. So again, think about this. It's the light on the word. It's keeping watch and it's doing what? It's causing us to bloom and blossom. That's why you have all these flowers on the menorah. Uh, underneath the menorah or underneath the flowers are these knops. Nobody knows what a knop is. The Hebrew word is kaftor, and it means to encircle or support. So again, this light is supporting all of this. It's the Holy Spirit, his light shining on the word. It's to keep alert. It's for us to keep watch. The flowers are blooming. These knops, it's, it, the word means, you know, we think, well, what is a knop? You know, show me a knop on my plant. I don't have a knop on my plant. It's, it's the word is support or uh, encircle. So you look at all of these things that are going on on the candlestick and you can look at it like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. You know, it's got all these deals and that's pretty. But the picture is something else. It's the picture of the spirit. It's being encircled. It's being held up. It's watching. It's blooming. It's blossoming into doing all those things. Um, and it's interesting that, that for the first time, you know, we've talked about the temple. We've talked about the mercy seat. We've talked about the, uh, the ark. We've talked about the table, talked about the bread and all the implements on the bread. All of that stuff, we've been told exactly how big it is. You know, they're all, the, and, and by the way, they're all the same height. I probably haven't mentioned that yet. But when we get to the menorah, we're not, it doesn't, we were given no, it, nobody knows how big it was. It doesn't matter, I guess. You know, we're not so, told the size because I, would expect that you can't measure the light of God. So that no size is given. The menorah is made of com completely of gold. Remember the ark and the mercy seat and the table and the, and the boards that hold the, uh, the building up. They're made of acacia wood, incorruptible wood, and the wood, you know, is a picture of humans, covered in gold, right? We're protected, we're covered by God. We're protected by his deity. We're covered in his deity. Until we get to the menorah, it's solid gold. There's no human element in this. It's all God. The light, the growth, the blossoming, the, everything that goes along with the spirit is all God. It has nothing to do with us. We, it, it, it's holy God. We are not involved. So the menorah, if you remember the picture, there's a main shaft, one unity, singleness, picture of God. There are three knops. Three, you know, uh, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. There are six branches. I don't know. The number of man. There are um, a bunch of other stuff. I don't know where it went. There it is. Um, as you know, I'm not much of a techie. And then I get excited and push the wrong button and everything goes away. Because it's all from the enemy. Okay, six branches, the number of man, and they're supported you know, by the one branch that's God, three branches on each side. So you've got maybe the Tanakh and maybe the New Testament, Jews and Gentiles, law and prophet, however you want to see that. 
uh, nine ornaments, number of the Holy Spirit, 12 symbols, which of course are the number of tribes of Judah, the foundation of New Jerusalem. 12 is typically the number for holy government. And there are 66 total little parts and pieces on this, which there happened to be, what a coincidence, 66 books in the Bible. Uh, if you look at this thing, there's 27 implements on, or, you know, knobs, berries, whatever, on one side, 27 books in the Brit Kaddish, the New Testament, and 39 on the shaft and on the other side, oddly 39 books in the Tanakh. Um, so when you look at, when you just look at the menorah, there are a hundred things about the menorah that speak to, you know, and is this all coincidence? Oh, I'm sure it is. You know, it's just, it's just happenstance that we wound up with exactly the number of books that are displayed on the, the picture of the Holy Spirit, the light of God that shines on the truth, that shines on the word. You know, all of this stuff, you know, we've looked through four of these things so far, and they're all like this, right? It's, it's, it's a gigantic coincidence. I'm sure it has no meaning. And you can look at it that way. And like I say, you can, you can learn about all these things. You can, you know, they make great uh, party tricks and you can impress your friends with all the different things that happen on the candlestick and, you know, what it seems to be saying. But that's never the point. It's all there to prove to you, to prove to me that it's all true. Everything that's contained on the bread, the word, it's all true. And, those, and when, it, when we start to believe it's really true and it changes our mind, then it changes our heart. We find ourselves in the holy place with the ark and the mercy seat and with God. And that's where he desires to be. He desires to live with us. And why he would tell Moses, Moshe, that he wanted him to build a house so that he, the creator of the entire universe, could come down and live with this group of people, it's, it makes no sense. None at all. It makes some sense when you start to look at it from our perspective, because he wants to live with his people. And he, he, in the future, he was going to indwell his people. Did they know that in Israel at the time? I think some did. And I've said before that I think the patriarchs were given. You know, they were told what was going to happen. I believe Moses knew. I believe Abraham knew. I believe a lot of those guys knew the whole story. But how do you go about telling that story in the future to people who barely believe today? So the Lord writes it all out. This is what I want you to do. I want you to make this menorah to look just like this with this number of pieces and parts. And I want you to make this table with the bread and the bread is the word. And I want you to make the mercy seat. And I want you to make the ark. And we're putting my authority and my provision and, and my law in that ark. You know, he does all these things so that we, looking back on it, can go, oh my gosh, that's crazy. That can only speak of one thing, that this is all true. And if you start to believe this is really true and not just say, oh, yeah, that's probably true, then your heart changes and your actions change. And all of a sudden, you become the people that he asks us to be. You become the kind of people that live a life so that those neighbors, your Jebusite neighbors, your Moabitish neighbors, those people out there screaming, howling, will look at you and go, huh, that's something I want, instead of being out in your yard howling at the moon. I don't know. That's, that's, that's where we are so far. So.